Please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 7 this evening. The sign of the redemption of David's house, Isaiah chapter 7. I told you a couple of weeks ago that we were finished in 2 Samuel. We walked through the entire book, finished with chapter 24, and by all accounts we are indeed finished with 2 Samuel. However, in a manner of speaking, I would like us to revisit 2 Samuel this evening on this Christmas Sunday. And as we do so, we're going to form a link, a link between the final words of David, recorded not in 2 Samuel 24, but in 2 Samuel 23, the final written words of David, and the birth of Messiah. We spoke of this link already, and I'm going to take some of what I told you uh, when I preached that message maybe four weeks ago, and I'm going to rehash it today in order to draw this link a little more clearly. But tonight I would like us to trace this link, to soak in the redemption of the house of David as recorded through the promises made in the Old Testament in Isaiah 7, and through it to comprehend the breadth of God's faithfulness to His people generally, and to the house of David specifically, and even more more broadly or, or more so to we as His church today. And we'll consider this as we span a full 1,000 years of history. Jesus is so many things. He is, as we consider this morning, wonderful, counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the great God. He is Redeemer. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is faithful. And He is true. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the Good Shepherd. He is the Great Prophet. He is the Great High Priest. But tonight, we see Him not even as much as Emmanuel, though Emmanuel will be what we are reading this evening, but we see Him as the sign. The sign of that Redeemer of David's house, the just ruler, the righteous ruler who would rule in the fear of the Lord, the one that would come and He has come in Messiah. The one that Simeon would say in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, a sign that is spoken against. Jesus is that sign. That's what we are going to consider this evening. We pick up in Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, where we read this, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, the king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. So we open chapter 7 of Isaiah with an introduction to our timeline. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah. I don't know if it's readable. It's fairly readable up there, a little bit small. We have a lot of timeline there. Uh, We step into history some 228 years after the end of Solomon's reign. During the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam, the kingdom of Israel divided into two, what we call the divided monarchy. Judah and Benjamin remained united around Jerusalem, the temple, and the kingly line of David, and they called the name of their nation Judah. The other ten tribes of Israel split off from David's line under the leadership of a man named Jeroboam and formed a new nation called Israel. 
Now, Jeroboam was a man who was ordained of the Lord, and yet he chose to do wrong, and he plunged the nation of Israel into deep apostasy and pagan worship. The capital of Israel was made Samaria. Ahaz was the 11th king in the Davidic line since the divided monarchy began. So since the time of Solomon, Ahaz was the 11th king to have sat upon the throne, as you can see from the timeline on the screen. Second Chronicles 28 tells us that Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 16 years in Jerusalem. Ahaz's grandfather was Uzziah, one of the great kings uh, recorded in Jewish history and in the history of Judah. His father... Um, uh, Ahaz's father, that would be, not Uzziah's father. Ahaz's father was a man named Jotham. And we read of Jotham, we read this of him in Second Chronicles 27, verses 1 and 2. Jotham was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did, albeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord, and the people did yet corruptly. So during uh, Jotham's reign, he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. He led in a moral way. However, he never entered into the temple. The temple uh, would, for many years, be completely in disrepair, uh, would hardly be uh, thought of at all, even though they were right there in Jerusalem, Solomon's Grand Temple, uh, it was ignored by and large by the majority of the kings and even David's line. And the people had nothing to do with the temple. Uh, David and his, and his lineage had nothing, that David's lineage, excuse me, had nothing to do with the temple either. And so he still did not enter into the temple of the Lord. And the people still were corrupted. They were worshiping in high places. Even those that worshiped the Lord, they didn't do so at the temple as God commanded. They did so in the high places. They erected places, and then certainly many of them had apostatized as well. Ahaz, however, was not a good king. And we read of this in Second Chronicles 28, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says Ahaz was 20 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. But he did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, like David his father, for he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and made also molten images for Balaam. So Ahaz had been deeply influenced, as had several other kings in, Ju- in Judah's history, by the wickedness of paganism as followed by the kings in Israel. The northern tribes, uh, the northern tribes of Israel, the, those ten tribes that made up Israel in the divided monarchy, followed a deeply pagan path. Uh, the calf, golden calf worship of Jeroboam that hearkened all the way back to the golden calf, calf worship of Aaron and of Israel in the deserts of Sinai while Moses was up receiving the Ten Commandments and he... Uh, brought about a same pagan worship system that mixed the worship of Jehovah with the worship of paganism. In the days of Ahab, of course, and Jezebel, that became more pagan than it ever had before. He was a deeply wicked king, uh, his uh, grandfather uh, being Omri, and uh, the, the whole path of those kings was evil and wickedness until they were wiped off the face of the earth and the lineage was destroyed. In Israel, So Ahaz followed after this deeply wicked pagan line, these, these, this pagan worship system that worshipped the gods of the land, specifically mentioned here, Balaam. Though Ahaz had followed these wicked kings, however, 
This did not mean that he was on good terms with Israel. In fact, we read in verse 1 that Rezin, who is the king of Syria, and Pekah, who is the son of Remaliah, who, had currently, who was currently, that Pekah being the king of Israel at the time, they were confederate. They, were, they had come together, they had made a pact together, and they together were warring against Judah. However, as they were doing so, they could not prevail against it. So they were not prevailing against Judah, but they were warring against Judah. You can imagine then that this was a time in Judah of uncertainty and of sorrow, as people were dying, as cities were being burned, as Israel and Syria were fighting against Judah as a nation. And we continue in verse 2, it says, And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim, and his heart was moved, and the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. So Ahaz is told that Syria and Ephraim, Ephraim was the strongest of those northern tribes, and so oftentimes Israel would be called by that name Ephraim. It's speaking of the northern tribes of Israel. Syria and Ephraim were working together against Judah. And of course Ahaz knows this. He's terrified by this, as is his people. And the way that we know that they were terrified by this is the way it's described here in verse 2. That their hearts were moved as trees moved by the wind. If you've ever seen a windy day, and up here you have seen some windy days, if you look outside you see the wind and they're shaking, right? The trees are shaking, if not leaning. And, And that is how the hearts of the people of Judah were described as shaking in the wind, as being moved by this. They are terrified. Verse 3 says, Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, Go forth to meet now to meet Ahaz, thou and Sheer Jashub thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool and the highway of the fuller's field. So uh, Ahaz is uh, presumably going for a walk, maybe inspecting uh, the grounds, inspecting the fortifications of Jerusalem. And God tells Isaiah and Isaiah's son, Sheer Jashub, to go up and to meet Ahaz. And to tell him this in verse 4. Take heed and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted. For the two tails of these smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Ramaliah. God tells Ahaz not to be afraid, but even more importantly, not to try to do this himself, to act on the fact that, that Israel and Syria are confederate against him. God is saying, don't act in your own power on this one. That's the meaning of be quiet there in the Hebrew. God tells Ahab that these Ahaz, excuse me, that these nations are little more than the hot end of a fire poker. That's the idea there. Two tails of smoking firebrands. They're smoking firebrands. They're they're fire pokers. They're poking at you and they're poking at you with a hot end, so it's gonna burn a little bit, but they're not anything more than that. They're just the two tails of smoking firebrands. God describes them as powerless to truly act against the nation, and that because it is not within God's will that Judah would be overthrown. They can smoke all they want. They can poke all they want, but they have no fire. They have no power, only anger and a show of force. This is a good reminder to us as well. Oftentimes we get into places, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in our application, we'll get into places where we're concerned, where it seems that the problems are insurmountable, where we are faced with enemies, whether that's enemies of health, whether that's enemies of of finances, whether that's enemies of 
neighbors, whether that's enemies of, of business, whether that's enemies of employment. And we face these enemies, and as, as our, our hearts are tempted to well up with fear so that we are shaken like when the wind shakes the trees and we are ready to act, and sometimes we just need to remember to be quiet and to fear not because God is in control. His will will be done. Isaiah continues speaking to Ahaz in verses 5 through 7. He says, Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabael. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand. Neither shall it come to pass. So God tells Ahaz that though these kings wanted to come up to Judah, wanted to terrify Judah, invade Judah, overthrow Judah, and then install a new king in Jerusalem, and this being the son of Tabael, who at the time we believe was the son of the king of Assyria. God says explicitly this will not come to pass. Now this is interesting. Because Judah and Syria knew that Assyria, Assyria was a different uh, a nation from Syria. Assyria's capital was Nineveh, the same people that Jonah went to. Assyria was one of the greatest historical powers uh, that you can read about. They were incredibly powerful, and they were one of the most brutal nations to ever conquer. They were extremely, extremely brutal. And so what we're reading here is Judah and Syria, or Israel and Syria actually had this plan. Let's go up to Judah, let's conquer it, and then let's give the nation of Judah as a gift to the son of the king of Assyria so that they won't bother us. Kind of a peace offering. That's the plan there. But God says it's not going to work because there's a Davidic line in Judah that could not and would not be overthrown. So Ahaz needed not to be troubled. God is all-knowing. But Ahaz is not all-knowing. God knows that this is going to be okay. But Ahaz, his heart is afraid. He's not as convinced. So God continues with his assurances. He says this. Excuse me, verse 8 and 9. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. Now, a score is a depreciated word. It's uh, not used in our language necessarily anymore. It was used certainly as far back as we, we certainly know the Gettysburg Address, right? Four score and seven years ago is how that begins. A score is 20. So this tells us, God tells Ahaz here that in three score and five years, Ephraim will no longer even be a nation. In Sixty-five years, Israel would be a conquered people. The nation would be wiped out of history, and God warns that such a fate could also happen to Judah if Ahaz does not have faith and believe the Lord. He says, if you do not believe, you will not be established. If he chooses, rather, to trust in armies and to trust in diplomacy and to trust in his understanding and his strength, rather than to trust in the Lord, he will not prosper. I look forward to preaching this message sometime and really hitting this angle. That's not the angle we're coming at this evening. We're not coming at the angle, as I've mentioned already, of when fear and concerns grip your heart, unbelief will not 
cause you, you will not prosper if you don't believe. You will not prosper if you don't get on God's side. That's a message for another day. This is Christmas. We're focusing on Christ. But, but let me just, I pray that the Holy Spirit, if, if you're struggling this evening, if that's something that you're dealing with tonight, if you're struggling with fears, and you're struggling with concerns, and it seems as though the, the, the trials and troubles are insurmountable, would you read through this passage with that in mind? Would you read through this passage and see how God tells Ahaz, look, Yes, Ephraim is going to be conquered. They've abandoned the Lord. But if you will believe, you can be established. You can perhaps, however, hear the pleading in Isaiah's voice. Isaiah pleading with the king, if you will but trust the Lord, if you will but return to the Lord, if you will but trust that God's plan is is what it is, if you will trust that His promises to David are true, that the Davidic line is here, that it is established, you, you can be established as well. And so gracious is God's, and so deep is His desire to comfort Ahaz, this king who is wicked, that he promises to give him a sign. He asks Ahaz to ask for a sign. We read this in verses 10 and 11. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. This is an incredible offer by God. Ask me a sign, Ahaz. Any sign in the depths below or in the heights above. Whatever it would take to convince you, Ahaz, you who have deviated from the example of your father and grandfather in serving the Lord, you who are worried about uh, Ephraim and about Syria, even though God has made a promise to you through His prophet that they will not be able to conquer you, I'm going to go one step further, God says, and I'm going to let you ask of me a sign, any sign, and I will do it just to prove to you that you can trust me. Imagine such a scenario in your own heart. How wonderful would that be? Think of that line which we all draw in our own hearts concerning faith. That step that we just cannot bring ourselves to take in regard to God's promises because we just don't trust Him enough to get there. Now imagine you're, you're at that line and you just won't step over it. You just cannot trust that God will be faithful to His Word as, as you know it and as you understand it. And then somebody comes to you. And he says, I have a message from the Lord. He said he was a prophet of God. And he told you to pick out, and, 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 and it's verified. And he said, pick out a promise from the Word of God that you're having trouble believing. And after you pick it out, he says, now ask for a sign, any sign, in the heavens above, in the earth beneath. Ask for that sign so that God can prove his power to you. When, when you see this sign, you will know that if you trust the Word of God, it will come to pass. What a blessing that would be, right? What an opportunity to validate your own faith by asking for a sign. What graciousness God is giving to Ahaz here. God is under no obligation to to work with Ahaz's faithlessness. Yet he patiently seeks to convince Ahaz of his own best good. And isn't that just our God? Now imagine instead of accepting this this privilege, you become hyper-pious and you reject the offer of God in the name of God. Foolish? Absolutely. But that's exactly what Ahaz does. Verse 12, But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. 
Ahaz attributes this opportunity given by God through God's prophet as a test on whether or not he will tempt the Lord, which of course it is not. We spoke not too long ago as we considered the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness by Satan, the difference between tempting God and proving God. To tempt the Lord is to act in such a way that you are taking advantage of the promises of God. You are asking, you are testing the limits of God's promise. You are pushing the envelope of what God has promised of you. And you are asking God to move outside of His perfect will in order to provide for you. If I can give an example. This is uh, what Paul warns about in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. We have memorized it for this month, right? What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How should we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? When you continue in sin that grace may abound, when you say, I'm under grace, I've got my get out of hell free card, I am saved by grace so I can just go ahead and sin because after all, I'm not going to spend eternity in hell anyway, that is tempting God. That is bringing, that is, that is bringing God to a place where His grace that is being poured out upon you must abound much more than it ought to be because you are persisting in sin that you know you should not be. That is tempting the Lord. Proving the Lord is something entirely different. To prove the Lord is to act in such a way that you step out in faith and then you rely upon God's promises. You say, I'm going to trust God's promises and I'm going to prove that His promises are true by stepping out in faith. This is uh, when you know that God has promised you provision, right? Having food and raiment, let, it there with, let us therewith be content. Uh, God promised it. Jesus promised it in Matthew chapter 6. And you say, okay, God has promised to put food on my table. He has promised to put clothes on my back. And you know, I really don't think I can afford to give, but the Lord is laying upon my heart to give to that person, and I'm going to do it. I'm going to prove that God is true, that if I give, that the Lord will bless me for it. And so you give. That is proving the Lord, and that is what God wants. He wants to be proven. He hates to be tempted. Ahab should not, Ahaz, I keep saying Ahab, Ahaz should not have needed this promise of God to begin with. He should have trusted God implicitly, but he didn't. And so God gave him a promise. Ask for a sign, Ahaz. And I will prove to you that you will not be overthrown. And Ahaz says, no, I will not tempt God. And in doing so, he has hardened his heart to the things of God. He rests in spiritual darkness, in spiritual deception. And he has rejected the goodness of God. So God responds in turn, verse 13. And he said, hear ye now, O house of David. Notice the change. Notice the change in pronoun reference. In chapter 7, verse 12, excuse me, verse 11, ask thee a sign. In our King James Bibles, when you read thee, thine, or thou, the word behind it is a second person singular word. It's speaking to one person. This is one of the blessings of the King James Bible. It's the same in the Hebrew and the Greek. They both have a different tense, a different makeup for their, their, their pronouns as to whether it's second person singular or second person plural. As a matter of fact, many languages today still have this, though English does not. When you see you, your, or ye, 
That's a second person plural pronoun. That means that there's a group being spoken to. And there are several times in Scripture where this matters. And what a blessing that the King James translators translated in such a thorough way that we can actually see indications of the Hebrew and the Greek in our English and know what's going on without having to uh, even open up a concordance to find out. So in verse 13, notice we changed. Verse 11, it was ask the assign. Now verse 13, and he said, hear ye now. He's now speaking to a group. Well, he's there speaking to Ahaz. Who's the group? Here it is. O house of David. Isaiah says, I'm speaking to you, and I'm speaking to every single king that's going to come after you in the lineage of David. You who are in the lineage of David, the house of David, listen to me, house of David. It is, a small, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary my God also? See, by rejecting this sign, a sign which God has given in grace, all that's happening here is, is Ahaz is resisting the grace of God. And God is getting weary. God has made these promises to David and to his house, and they are resisting. The house of David, while I had many men who were right in the sight of the Lord, were as a whole, even from the days of its namesake, the great King David himself, as a whole, they were a deeply flawed house. Indeed, it was only a few weeks ago in 2 Samuel 23 that David admitted that he, as a man whose family had been chosen to rule perpetually in Israel, had fallen deeply short of God's will for him as a king. Remember those words from 2 Samuel 23, verse 3. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. David heard these words and understood that the ruler of God's people must rule in justice and in the fear of the Lord. David, however, had fallen deeply short of this in the last half of his reign. He had sinned with Bathsheba. He had murdered Uriah the Hittite. And he had fallen into deep sin. And he had been judged for that sin. His final years were year, years of failure, even to that last act of numbering the people and a plague which killed tens of thousands in Israel. Solomon, too, would experience spiritual failure. He started out very well, and then as he multiplied unto himself wives and horses and riches, his wives turned his heart away from the Lord to serve false gods. And throughout the lineage of David and the house of David, there would be uh, many kings that walked in the way of the Lord, but very few whose heart was perfect until we get to Hezekiah. And the Bible says that Hezekiah was a king that was unlike any before him or after him who loved and trusted the Lord and who walked in all of his ways. So as David thought on these things in 2 Samuel 23, he was distressed. But we, we, we recall, as we talked about in that sermon several weeks ago, there was comfort to be found. And that comfort was found in the promise of God in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16, what we call the Davidic Covenant. God promised that the house of David would rule over Israel forever, that God's mercy would not be taken away. And as we remarked when I preached on that passage, David, without fail, understood that this promise meant that through his line would come the one who would rule and reign in justice, the Messiah himself, 
would come through him. And so David could say in 2 Samuel 23, verse 5, Although my house be not so with God, although my house is not faithful, although I have not been faithful, yet he hath made me with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he make it not. To grow. David said, Although I have failed at being faithful, yet there's coming one who will be. There's coming one who will be the redemption of me, of my line, and who will lead Israel. And this is an important link. And we remarked at the time that what David was looking forward to was when Messiah, the promised king, would rule in justice, would rule in perfection would rule in the fear of God. For some 275 years after David wrote those words, there had been no real further revelation regarding David's relationship to Messiah. Kings had come. Kings had gone. The nation was now divided into Israel and Judah. And now God speaks to the whole of the house of David in the days of Ahaz. And He says... In verse 14, Therefore, the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. If Ahaz would not ask for a sign, if he would not trust the Lord, so be it. God is not in the game of compelling man's will. Man has a free will. He guides, he leads, he asks, he rewards, but he does not compel. And since Ahaz has rejected a sign, God promises that he would give the whole house of David a sign. And when they saw that sign, they would know that God's goodness was complete, that there was faithfulness to be found in the house of David, that the deliverance that God promised would be realized. That sign would be a virgin, and this virgin would conceive and bear a son. And she would call this son's name Emmanuel, which in the Hebrew means God with us. This Redeemer of David's line, this Messiah, would not just be a man. He would be God in flesh. He would not just come from men, for he would be born of a woman who had never known a man. Yes, he would be born of a woman. Yes, he would be 100% human. But he would be Emmanuel. He would be God in flesh, 100% God, 100% man, what theologians often call the hypostatic union, God with men, God in flesh. Verses 15 and 16 continue. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good. The land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. This man, this God-man, this Emmanuel would be different from the rest of the line of David. This man would know to refuse evil and know to choose the good. Far from Ahaz, who completely didn't get it. He, he, he chose the evil and he refused the good. When God offered him good, he didn't even see it as good. He saw it as evil. He was so confused. He saw evil as good and good as evil. He refused this blessing of the Lord, this sign of the Lord. And God says there's coming a day when there will be a Messiah, when there will be one in the house of David who will know to choose good and who will know to refuse evil. When? 
When will this happen? Isaiah says it will happen when the land is forsaken of both of her kings. When there's no more a king in Israel. When there's no more a king in Judah. He calls it the land which Ahaz abhors. Which is interesting because in the next chapter, what is it called? What did we talk about this morning in Isaiah 8? It's called Emmanuel's land. The land which Ahaz abhors. That's Emmanuel's land. It's the land that he loves. Ahaz abhors it because he fails to choose the good. He has brought judgment upon God's people. But God says the land will become desolate as both Judah and Israel will fall and then the Messiah would come as a child born of a virgin in those days following the desolation of the nations. Enter Mary. 740 or so years after this promise is made. 740 years. Let that sink in. Isaiah says, A virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. He writes in a couple more chapters of the one who would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, a child that would be born. 740 years later, a young girl named Mary is approached. The nations of Israel and Judah had been taken into captivity and had been conquered for some 700 years at this point. 721 years or so for uh, Judah, some 600 years. uh, Excuse me, for Israel, some 700 years. um, For Judah, some 600 years. Both nations had been forsaken of her kings since the captivity at around 600 B.C. The nation had been under the control of foreign governments from the time of that fall all the way till the day that the angel Gabriel appeared unto Mary. And he tells Mary that she is blessed among women, that every generation would call her blessed. Gabriel tells her that she would bear a son and that she would call his name Jesus, for he would save his people from their sins. Mary says, how could this be? Seeing that I've known not a man, seeing that she was a virgin. And Gabriel tells her in Luke chapter 1, verse 35, that the Holy Ghost would come upon her. That the power of the highest would overshadow her. So that the one that would be born of her would be called the Son of God. Mary is found to be with child. And Joseph, being a just man, intends to divorce her, to put her away privily. He could do so publicly, but instead he intends to do so privately in order to spare her the public shame and humiliation. And as he is thinking on these things, the Bible tells us the angel of the Lord appears unto him. And this is where we pick up in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where we read this. And she shall bring forth a son. This is the angel speaking to Joseph. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. For he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And here it is. Here is the link between the words of Isaiah 7.14 and Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord declares that the birth of of this child by a virgin girl is the fulfillment of the prophecy made by Isaiah to King Ahaz some 750 years before. And through this prophecy, 
we see a sign. A sign to the house of David. That's what it was supposed to be, right? That's what Isaiah 7 tells us. The Lord will give you a sign, house of David. You, house of David, there's a sign for you, and the sign is this, a virgin shall conceive. Jesus is the sign to the house of David. A sign that the one who would come to redeem David's house, to redeem David's testimony, to redeem him from his failures, that to redeem him from the failures that plague human frailty and unfaithfulness has finally come. And as the sign had come, so too had Messiah, the one who would not only redeem David's house, but indeed he would save, he would be the redemption of the world. Now, we follow Jesus' life and we learn that Israel rejected this sign. They said they don't want it. This is not our Messiah. We reject him. So that today, Israel stands in spiritual darkness, stumbling at the stumbling block that is the gospel of Jesus Christ until the fullness of the Gentiles come to faith. We talked about that this morning. But from this amazing series of events, we can find a personal source of joy on this Christmas day, a personal sign. For Jesus stands not only as a sign to the house of David, but he, sign, he stands as an ensign to the nations, as a sign, as I mentioned already. Luke 2.34. Simeon says he would be a sign spoken against. Jesus stands as a banner, waving in the wind for encouragement of all who will believe. And a banner of what? And this is where we'll apply. I'm going to give you four signs that Jesus brings. We could do about a dozen more, I, I should imagine. But let me give you four on this Christmas night. First, Jesus is your sign of peace. Jesus is your sign of peace. What peace? Well, two different types of peace. Peace with God. And peace in God. First, peace with God. Paul spoke of the joys of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Romans chapter 5, and he said this, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That whereas God's wrath cannot abide the sin of mankind, God poured that wrath upon Christ. Paul would describe it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15 this way. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, that's speaking of Jews and Gentiles, one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. God hath made Jew and Gentile one. He's broken down the partitions between man and God, between holy and unholy, between clean and unclean. He abolished the enmity between you and God through His flesh on the cross. And so without any enmity, there exists only peace. We have peace with God. We have peace from God. And we have peace one with another. James admonishes us in James 3.18. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle and easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. 
and the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. Peace with God. Peace with man. The peace of God. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 say, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Perhaps there are some listening under the sound of my voice today, and you know you have no peace with God. You have never accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You are still at enmity with God. Christ came as a sign that you can have peace. Perhaps there is someone here today who is not at peace with others. There is conflict between you and others. The fruit of righteousness is sown in peace to them that make peace. God came and Christ is a sign that you can make peace. Perhaps there is some today and you are in inner turmoil. Anxiety, depression, confusion, uh, discouragement, anger, bitterness, and it is in you, and it is bottled up. Jesus Christ is a sign that there can be peace. We've preached on bitterness before. We've preached on anger. We've preached on anxiety. We've preached on those things. I can't, uh, uh, we're not going to get into all of it this evening. But Jesus Christ is a sign on the authority of the Word of God. Your sign of peace. Secondly, Jesus is your sign of joy. Peace. Joy. When the angel of the Lord appeared unto the shepherds on the night of our Lord's birth, he said in Luke 10 that he bore good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. When Jesus was born, a source of joy entered into this world unlike any man had experienced. Peter spoke of joy in the context of great suffering in 1 Peter 1, and he said this, Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, and whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Joy is something that most people, it has eluded most people today. They understand the concept of happiness, and they will seek that happiness through the world's concepts, through the world's attempts. They'll seek happiness in money. They'll seek happiness in family. They'll seek happiness in giving. They'll seek happiness in, in things, in material possessions, in the newest gizmo, in the newest gadget, in the new car, in the new house, in the new clothes, in the new shoes, in the new haircut, in the new hair color, in the new eye color, whatever it might be. They are seeking happiness, and they're seeking it in all the places that you can possibly find it, but what they aren't finding and indeed cannot find outside of Christ is joy. Joy is that inner rest, that inner delight that transcends circumstances, so that with Peter we can say that even in the midst of our deepest trials, we can have the greatest of joy because we know that our soul is secure, because we know that there's a God in heaven that loves us. Because we know that there's coming a day, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, our hope that there's coming a day when we will receive the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. 
Our Savior died and rose again, sits at the right hand of the Father. His Spirit is in you, and indeed, you are in Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace, among six other fruits of the Spirit. Number three. First, Jesus, He's your sign of peace. Second, He's your sign of joy. Third, He's your sign of freedom. Don't miss this one. Mankind is born into a world of whom our adversary, the devil, is the prince of the power of the air. Our adversary, the devil, has been given authority over the kingdoms of this world, and we are born as a slave to sin and to his rule. But Jesus stands as a sign to us, not only of peace and of joy, but of the freedom from sin, from the chains and the bondage of sin that binds us under Satan's power. As Jesus walked in the earth, he told a crowd in John 8, verses 31 to 36, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we're never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth ever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. We won't get into all of the implications of that this evening, of what it means, uh, but that Jesus Christ as the son, as the free man, as the heir, and we talked about it when we were in Galatians, and we, we, we exposited Galatians, he can break, he does, he has, he has purchased the capacity to break the chains of sin in which we live as unbelievers. And even as a believer, you can put yourself back into the chains, into the bondage of sin. But Jesus Christ has paid the price so that you can live free from sin. If the Son shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. Free to live as God intended us to live. Jesus compared Himself as a shepherd. Uh, to a shepherd in John 10. And then after the shepherd, he said, I am the door through which the sheep enter. And in that context as the door, he says in John 10, 10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Abundant life, joyful, peaceful freedom is purchased for you in Christ. That's the sign. If you're living in bondage today, if you're living in bondage to sin, if you're living in bondage to guilt, if you're living in bondage to fear, if you're living in bondage to anxiety, if you're living in bondage to depression, if you're living in bondage to materialism, if you're living in bondage to the things of this world, to anger, to bitterness, to wrath, to hatred, to malice, if you're living in bondage to adultery or to fornication or to uncleanness or to lasciviousness, if you're living in bondage... Christ's purpose was to make you free, to give you an abundant life, a transcendent joy, a transcendent peace, an abiding freedom from Satan, from the world, from the flesh, from the devil, from the lust of the flesh, from the lust of the eyes, from the pride of life. Are you living in that freedom? Have you grasped it? Have you clung to it? 
Are you walking in it daily? One final one this evening. He's your peace. He's your joy. He's your freedom. He's your sign of hope. We could talk about love. We could talk about long-suffering and patience and all of the other fruit of the Spirit. But let's talk about hope. First Peter 1 spoke of the joy unspeakable and full of glory that is rooted in our hope and um, in the salvation that is to come. You know, we live in a world full of evil, lacking in so many basic levels of virtue and decency and honor. The world is a beautiful place physically indeed, and, and humans are an incredible creation. Every once in a while you will watch or you will read of someone in humanity that assumes some degree of biblical morality and dignity and so does something right. Something that we would be described as beautiful. Something that encourages our heart and says, see, there's still hope for humanity. But you know, there's not in humanity. The only hope for humanity is in Christ. But may I describe to you true beauty this evening? The true beauty... True beauty has never been fathomed by this world. The true beauty that Jesus Christ came and purchased, that you accepted, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've experienced it, but you have yet to see it. That is our hope. Our hope is that which we have to long for, to look forward to the beauty that is to come. May I describe to you this beauty this evening. A beauty which I would encourage you to attempt to envision in your mind's eye all the while knowing that you will fall utterly short of its complete comprehension. For indeed, you do not even have the frame of reference available by which to allow your imagination to comprehend such beauty. And in order to do so, I'm going to read to you a chunk of Scripture. I'm going to read to you a chunk, so, so get ready. 27 verses from Revelation chapter 21. Do you want to know what is truly beautiful? It's what you have to hope for. It's the salvation that you have coming one day. It is the complete redemption of your body. It is the heavenly Jerusalem. It is the new heavens and the new earth. It is the time where Jesus is ruling and reigning in righteousness. This is true beauty. Let me begin reading in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will deal with them, as they, and they shall be his people. Excuse me, dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And here, just comprehend the beauty. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true. And faithful, and he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain the water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving 
and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain, and he showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto the, a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and the gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and the names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and on the wall of the city had twelve had twelve foundations, excuse me, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city, and the gates thereof, and the walls thereof, and the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and, and he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, and hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third um, chalcedony. And the fourth, an emerald, and the fifth, sardonyx, and the sixth, sardius, and the seventh, chrysolite, and the eighth, beryl, and the ninth, topaz, and the tenth, a crystal process, and the eleventh, a jacinth, and the twelfth, an amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it was transparent glass, and I saw no temple there. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it. And the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination, or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is your hope. Imagine a place where God will wipe away all tears, where God will dwell with men. No death, no sorrow, no crying, no pain. Where all things are made new, where the fountains of the waters of life flow freely, where the city is made of gold and of jewels, where there is no temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple, where there is no need for a sun because the glory of God lightens it, and indeed the Lamb of God is the light of the city. This is the place that we are headed to if you are in Christ. This is your hope. This is the place for which we long. 
the reality which will encompass eternity. And that child in the manger, the sign of the redemption of the house of David, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose birth we remember on this day. Not only is Jesus our hope of this place of rest and beauty, but He is the very glory by which this place of beauty will be illuminated. Jesus is your sign of peace. Do you have peace today? He's your sign of joy. Are you living in the joy of the Lord? He is your sign of freedom. Are you living in the freedom that Christ has purchased on the cross? He's your sign of hope. Are you daily remembering the hope that we long for, that we head to, even the salvation of our souls? Our sign, our banner, Jesus Christ, of all that is good, of all that is worthy, in this world and in the world that is to come. A sign unto the house of David and the fulfillment of God's promises to His servant. A sign unto us that we no longer need live in fear, in sorrow, in spiritual defeat. For Christ has conquered. And you and I, we are His. Let's pray.